Welcome. You're listening to sermons and talks from Providence Church in Brisbane. We believe that God speaks to us through His Word, the Bible. So we pray that as you listen, you'll be encouraged and challenged to love Jesus and live for Him. For more information about Providence Church, please visit our website, First Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 to 10. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, For you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Father, we do thank you for your word. We do thank you that uh, you're a, a generous God, a God who, uh, who, who desires to um, speak to us and, and to teach us and to lead us. And I pray, Lord, as we come to your word now, we'll come with humble hearts to receive it, to consider what it says, and to consider how we can live it out as, uh, as your people, as the church in the world that we live in. We do pray now, Lord, that your spirit will be at work convicting our hearts of anything and, and moving our hearts to live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, now, I don't know about you, but uh, my news feed was swarmed this week with news articles about Andrew Thorburn. Does anyone, did anyone read about that? Like, no? Some people did, some people didn't. Uh, if you don't know, Andrew Thorburn, he, he got the position of CEO of the Essendon Football Club in Melbourne. Now, this is big news because um, what happened is uh, Thorburn, he was appointed the position, the media questioned him about his position, about being a CEO of a football club, but also being a board member, the chairperson uh, of a board uh, in, uh, in the church in Melbourne called City on a Hill. And so he's taken this position of CEO, but he's also got this role in his church, being a board member. Uh, and uh, the media got onto that. The, the church itself stands by biblical views on, on things like, uh, topics like abortion and sexuality. And the Premier got onto that, made some, the Premier of Victoria got onto that, made some comments, was appalled by it. And then within 24 hours of being given this position of CEO of this football club, Thorburn was, was in a sense, pushed to resign from that role. Within 24 hours, he resigned, and in that statement, he made a statement afterwards, after resigning, he said this, Today, it became clear to me that my personal Christian faith is not tolerated or permitted in the public square, 
at least by some and perhaps by many. Now, as this happened, the founder of the Purple Bombers, which is the LGBTI um, part of the football club, uh, the, the founder, Jason Toison McShane is his, is his name, uh, was interviewed. And he said this, he said, Andrew made the correct decision for himself and the football club, but I did not expect him to choose the church. Interesting, isn't it? And I can imagine, as I, over this last week, I've read so many articles on this, but many churchgoers are appalled at the treatment of Andrew Thorburn, having to resign, being pushed to resign as CEO because of clash of interests. Either he chooses uh, this role in the football club or he chooses his church. His faith was not tolerated. It, some are, are crying out, this is discrimination, not permitted in the public square to have this personal faith and still run a football club. Uh, many Christians I've talked to this week are now feeling the same concerns of, of simply saying you're a Christian in the workplace or being affiliated with an evangelical church, even one like Providence, will lead to being pressured or ousted from their position, especially the more public or higher up that you are in your company or organization. But I also imagine many non-church goers, there might be people here in the room who uh, don't usually come to church, you're not Christian, uh, but you're wondering why would this man choose church over being CEO of a big football club. Like, that's a legit job. Isn't the e easier choice just to renounce and, and quit your role, involvement in the church, and distance yourself perhaps from the, from the Christian stuff so you could pursue the, the prestigious and lofty position in society? For Thorburn, I think it's quite revealing of his heart, isn't it? He's not perfect or anything, but he made a decision under pressure, and he chose to side with his church. He chose the church. You see, when the pressure and heat is on, don't we see that? Don't we see his heart, where his priorities and heart belongs? Now, as I was chatting to my uh, missional community this week about this incident, uh, I, want, I asked them, where would we be if we were in that same situation? Would, our, would people in our lives be able to see markers, identity markers that show we are Christians, that believe and trust in Jesus, that we would stand with him, even, even with our careers, perhaps with our lives? You know, I want us to see today how a church that existed many, many years ago found themselves in similar situations as we find ourselves today with the pressure and heat that we're experiencing from our society. Uh, but for this church, it led them to be empowered and fruitful and faithful, anchored in the treasures of Christ amidst the hardships they faced. See, 1 Thessalonians was a young church. It was a young church, gone, and they're going to show us what it looks like to live out their faith, our faith, in light of eternity amidst the struggles and sufferings that we might face in this world. Uh, we're going to see what marks, today we're going to see what marks the genuine, authentic Christian life and to be challenged to take a long look at our own lives, to take a long look at our own hearts before God. But before we get to that, let's understand the context of this letter. And every week I say that, don't we? We've got to understand the context, understand what's going on in this passage, understand where the author's coming from, understand why these words are written to us. Uh, to do that, let me read the first couple of verses. So if you have your Bibles open, you can follow along with me in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I'll read just verse 1 and just verse 1. It says this Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. We have Paul, he's one of the apostles of Jesus, and his co workers Silas and Timothy writing a letter to the church of the Thessalonians. Paul, uh, he wrote many letters we find in the New Testament of our Bible. His co-workers, Silas and Timothy, they were part of his, uh, in a sense, a church planning team that went around on mission uh, into different cities, spreading the gospel of Jesus and planting churches wherever they went. And so in one of their journeys, they came across this city. 
The name of the city translated in English is Thessalonica. Uh, if you go on Wikipedia, it's Thessaloniki. Uh, this city, it's interesting fact, it was in ancient Greece. It was named after the half-sister of Alexander the Great, if you're interested in history. Uh, but the beauty of this story, wh- why this letter is here, we can actually find out about it all the way back in Acts. So the Acts actually gives us a narrative to how Paul planted this church here in Thessalonica. Uh, Acts is a book written by Luke, one of uh, Jesus, uh, who, who, knew, um, who knew Paul uh, and uh, wrote Acts and the book of Luke for us as well. So let's go back to Acts because that's going to give us some more context. Acts chapter 17, I've got it on the screen for us as well. Follow along with me just to understand how this church was planted. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous. So they round up some bad characters from the, from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. Uh, this is really crucial to understanding why Paul's um, coming, uh, uh, writing this letter to the Thessalonians, one and two Thessalonians in our, in our Bibles. Uh, we have to understand that the church is, is a young one. Paul went to the city. There were no Christians. He went to the synagogue, which is uh, the Jewish place of worship. He went to the synagogue for three Sabbaths, which means three weekends he was there. Just for three weeks he was in the city telling them about who Jesus is from the Bible, from the Old Testament. This Jesus is the one that they've been waiting for, the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the King, the one that the Jewish people have been anticipating. And it's it's cool, isn't it? He says, Jews and Greeks and prominent women as well in the city became Christians. Within three weeks of Paul being there, the church was planted. But Paul couldn't stay. A mob was formed and Paul and Silas had to escape to the next town. Instead, Jason... And other new Christian converts were dragged out. We're seeing this sort of guilt by association here. And they were accused of inciting a sedition, you know, which is the whole you know, defying Caesar, defying the Roman Empire. And so these people, uh, so, so these are, this is the church that Paul is writing to, a church in a city where they're still very new to the faith. Uh, Paul was only teaching them for about three weeks, and they felt often probably threatened, persecuted, bullied under pressure from others for putting their faith in Jesus. This is the city that, that Paul's writing to. That's the context in how they're receiving this letter. It was probably only about 12 to 18 months after Paul had left that he's writing this letter back, and he's heard reports about the city. Uh, in chapter 3 later on, we'll get to it, um, but Timothy, one of his co-workers, went to visit Thessalonica, comes back and tells Paul about how great it's going. And that's why Paul's writing this letter. He starts off with this big thanks. I thank God for you guys. And I love that about Paul. He has this pastoral heart, doesn't he? He can be really blunt sometimes, but he has this pastoral heart to his church. He pens this letter because he's thinking of them, wants to encourage them. Let's read that from verse 2. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith. 
your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith, hope, love, faith, love, hope. Paul celebrates because of how he sees God at work in and through them. They're producing this spiritual fruit, and he recognizes it. What's that spiritual fruit? It, fruit, it's faith, it's love, it's hope. We often hear Paul uh, say that refer to those things as the marks of the Christian life. In other letters, he talks about faith, hope, and love. There's a faith here that reveals itself through work, he says. Works such as serving God and ministry to God's people, work that's produced because of our faith in our Lord Jesus. Faith is, is very much about trust, isn't it? When we trust Jesus, we have faith in him. The one who died on the cross, who was raised again after three days, that's their faith. That's who they have faith in, Jesus. And it drives them to serve God and serve others an obedience to God. And isn't that true about when we have faith in something? When we put our faith in anything, doesn't our work and our obedience reflect what we put our faith in? I mean, we put our faith in, say, say money and your time and your work will be devoted to, to the hustle, to watching the stock market and pouring over your investments. That's what your work and your obedience is because that's where your faith is. If your faith was in love, your work would be devoted to what? Having, having the right profile on Tinder, perhaps? I don't know. Time, on the, time at the gym, time in front of the mirror. That's what it looks like when you invest because your faith is in love. Late night texting, all that stuff that young people do. You know, it, it, that's what people do, right? But, but for the church in Thessalonica and for us, what would our work and obedience look like if we're Christians and our faith is in Jesus? It's one that's devoted to God, isn't it? Striving to serve him and obey him. Uh, James uh, is a book, another book in the New Testament. Talks about, uh, he talks about this. Our faith alone without works is a dead faith. And, you know, so when we think about our faith, it has to lead to, to, to work, doesn't it? The good works to serve God and to serve his people. He goes on to speak about how uh, there's a labor prompted by love. Like uh, the efforts uh, this church puts into loving one another, it can only be... It can only conjure up a type of love that isn't easy, right? Labor. You know, when you think about the word labor, what do you think about? Mums in the room? Man, ask my baby mama about labor. She'll tell you it isn't easy. 36 hours of pain. I mean, love itself, sometimes when we think about love, you, you generally think it's easy, isn't it? I mean, when it's loving my family and friends, oh, most of the time, that's easy, effortless. You know, to love, love my daughter, man, I'm spinning over her. Easy to love her. But to love others? Sometimes we can only describe it as a labor. A labor of love. It's difficult at times, isn't it? Loving people who you might not click with. Loving the difficult. Loving those on the fringe. Loving when it's just hard to love. That's labor. But it's a labor. It's a, it's a love that's modeled to us in Jesus, isn't it? I mean, he loved us when we were still sinners. When we, we, when we were his enemies. He died on the cross out of his love for us. Paul sees the labor of love in the Thessalonian church, and he celebrates that in his prayer. They're marked by love, which is, uh, which is shown through knowing and emulating Jesus in their lives. And thirdly, he says, they endure with hope. Hope is always future, isn't it? Future-related. Uh, they, they're able to stand firm amongst the struggles. They're enduring uh, the threats of persecution because they have a hope they're holding on to, the hope of Jesus and his promises able to endure in the face of all that, media scrutiny, mobs that are harassing them, being vilified in society because they have a hope in Jesus in light of the eternity that's secured for them. Isn't that how we live out our life too? Hope in what's to come. Isn't that what drives the human heart? We hope for the promotion at work, so we work hard in the present. 
we hope for our children to grow up and be kind or smart, so we start drilling into them at a very young age as toddlers, principles and ethics and long division, right? Because we want them to be smart or kind. Our hope drives us. And for the Christian, what drives us to endure even in the face of suffering? When our careers are threatened, when we feel lonely, when we're struggling with our health, when life is overwhelming, when we're feeling like it's easier to quit the faith, friends, anchor your hope in Christ. It's Him and His promises. Endure in light of eternity. This life isn't all that there is. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and what He secured for us. As Paul celebrates what God is doing in this church, he remembers their faith, their love, and their hope, evidences of grace and what identifies them as believers, as Christians. If Paul saw you today, would he be able to say the same? He goes on to describe them in verse 4. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Paul says he has this confidence that they are known and loved. They're chosen by God. Why? Because their lives are changed. It's not just lip service they're giving to God. They aren't just saying the right words, giving the right answers in Bible study just to please people. They aren't just going through the motions of going to church each Sunday, joining a, joining a small group, putting your name down on a serving roster. No, their hearts were changed. Their lives were changed because they didn't just receive uh, the words, but transformation happened with power, it says. The Holy Spirit convicted their hearts, deep conviction. The gospel, that means, took root in their lives and bore fruit. Fruit like faith, love, and hope. But he says in verse 6, even in the midst of of suffering and adversity and pressure, they continue to stand firm. Not just stand firm, but have joy. Joy in the Holy Spirit. Enduring joy. Wow. Uh, regardless of their circumstances, whether we're cruising in life or whether we feel like we've hit rock bottom and the world is against you, enduring joy in Christ Jesus, that's, that's what he's saying, evidence of fruit. We've got to understand the gravity of that statement in the context. Remember, the context. They're in a pagan city, a city that rejects them. Jews that aren't happy with them because of this new religion. The Romans who think the Christians are trying to plan this takeover of the government with this new King Jesus. It's a hostile environment. They've been labeled a danger to society. For being called a Christian, you're guilty by association. And the more I see the context of the Thessalonian church, the more I'm seeing how cities around the world and cities even like Melbourne and Australia, the Christian church in the West, we're likely heading in that same direction, could be heading in that same direction. There are all these culture wars at play. And what, what's happening in our nation is sad. We're all about diversity, but then we, are we really about diversity? Because it's becoming more and more clear for Christians that we have to be prepared to have our faith challenged to probably expect that there might be some sort of bullying, some sort of discrimination that might come our way. Where Christianity in our country was once respected years ago, to them being tolerated and accepted, to now being dangerous. Or what the mainstream media says, you know, it's something that should be rejected. It's interesting, even premiers of, of states are saying that. To be a Christian is being one of the bad guys now. 
to be labelled as having ideas that are dangerous to society, to be guilty by association with the church and the Christian faith. You know, there's so many countries in the world that people around the world who are already facing this, aren't they? I have met people in Australia who've come here from overseas where they had to leave their family, their jobs, their very homes because of persecution for being a Christian. Paul says, I can see that you're authentic in your faith, genuine in your love for God because you know the Lord Jesus. You know there is joy to be had even amongst the sufferings we face today because Jesus is worth it. Because Jesus went before us. He endured the suffering on the cross. He experienced the wrath of God so we wouldn't have to. Why then are we surprised if we are at times humiliated, if we are at times discriminated, rejected for the sake of our Lord Jesus? When we receive the words of God, don't we also receive power and the spirit and conviction? And, and, and even as I, I, I speak right now, like I'm tr- I feel like I'm, I need to convince you guys, but why? Because it sounds unbelievable. Joy in affliction? Joy when I'm suffering? When my family's life at ri- is at risk, when my job security is on the line, when, when I don't know what the future holds for me? Joy? You see, what Paul is saying is, is enduring hardships with joy, well, you know, it, it's actually supernatural. Of course it doesn't sound like it, it could make sense to us. It's a joy that comes from the Holy Spirit. To know and embrace that God holds us close to Him. He brings us peace. He shoulders the weight of our burdens. And reminds us that we have the risen Lord Jesus who conquered death itself and still reigns today. When the Spirit is at work in you and me, and we felt the love and know the love of God at the cross for us, only then can we know the power of, the, of, of joy in the Holy Spirit. It is supernatural. Because the reality is, the, the world we face is going to be hard. Loneliness is hard. Insecurity about our future is hard. Being bullied and discriminated, that's hard. Throwing accusations out because of your faith, that's hard. There's going to be a suffering that you and I never thought we'd ever have to face in this lifetime. But it's coming if it's not already on our doorstep. Is Jesus worth it? Will you endure, endure enjoy with power from the Holy Spirit, like the Thessalonians did, because of your deep-rooted conviction that God is God? He loves you, has saved you, has a plan for you. Paul says that conviction and joy, even in affliction, that marks the Christian life. That marks a person who knows they are loved and chosen by God. But lastly, how do we identify a Christian? What else? Their lives have turned from worshipping idols to worship the one and true living God. Let me read verse 8. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. These guys have been Christians for, what, 18 months at most at the time of this letter. But isn't it so awesome to hear that their love and steadfastness for Jesus has been known across the whole region, even across the world? Macedonia and Achaia, it's the region surrounding the city. Word has got out. Their faith and trust in God is something that is being talked about. It's being celebrated. Their faith isn't counterfeit. A faith uh, that, that it looks like, it, a faith that is turning from, from idols to turning to God, it says, to serve the living and true God. And isn't that at the heart of knowing God? Isn't that at the heart of being, being a Christian? When you meet God, there is no other thing that you'd rather worth, uh, that's worthy of our worship. 
when we go all the way back to the Old Testament, it's just a running theme in the, in the Bible. You go back to Exodus in the Old Testament, when they're rescued out of slavery from Egypt and God gives them the Ten Commandments. In Exodus chapter 20, I think I've got it on the screen as well. Exodus 20, it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Right? The backdrop of that commandment is, I've rescued you, I've saved you out of slavery. Now, in how you worship me, don't turn to other gods. Come and worship me. You shall have no other gods before me. That's what God is saying. To worship other gods is showing that God himself isn't enough. To worship other gods is saying that his salvation wasn't sufficient. To worship other gods is, that, is, is saying that his sovereign power and his love is only subpar. It's easy to succumb to other gods, to other idols in our lives when we can't see God's goodness and power and love for us. But when we come to the cross of Jesus, don't we see God flex his power? Don't we see God defeat sin, conquer death, be raised again so that you and I could be saved out of our Egypt? And when we recognize that truth, doesn't this command just make sense? I mean, for any of us in the room, for the Christians in this room, isn't that true for you? We should all be saying amen right now. I once worshipped other things, but when I met Jesus and experienced his love, and discovered that my sin has been redeemed, there is no other thing that's worthy of my worship. While the Exodus commandment might sound like some ancient thing, we should all be able to own and admit that our hearts were once and might still be at times consumed by idols in our lives, aren't they? And when I say idols, I'm not talking, you know, for them it might look like, you know, statues out of, you know, wood and stone, but what idols consume our hearts? What does our life center on other than God that you seek after to give you meaning and purpose to satisfy your desires to meet your needs? I mean, it's easy to think of our vices, right? Like alcohol or drugs or sex is what we worship. But, but sometimes our idols are just the everyday heart needs. Love, comfort, recognition, validation, our need for freedom. What makes you feel on top of the world at times? And what makes you feel like you've lost everything? Sometimes it's good gifts, our family, our spouses, our jobs, those good things. But when we make those things ultimate, God tier, as, as important as God in our lives, aren't we making them the idols that we worship? What's on the throne of your life? What's on the throne over your heart? What are we promoting in our hearts that's more important than God himself? John Calvin, one of the forefathers of the Christian faith in the Reformation times in the 1500s, he says this, our hearts are a perpetual idol factory. Which we have to constantly identify and recognize and confess that there are things in our lives that we want to bow our knee to. And it's a really hard exercise to do. I'll admit that. To reflect on the sin in our hearts, that's, that's not easy. It's so much easier to recognize the sin in other people's lives. But self-awareness, man... That's something we've we got to pray for, isn't it? To be self-aware of my heart idols. But perhaps if I can suggest, think about what Paul just wrote about joy in our sufferings and our circumstances. What is that thing that brings you great joy and great despair and despondency when you don't have it? Now look to Jesus. See how he meets those needs in an infinitely greater way. Don't you see it? He gives you the love that you're looking for. Jesus offers you that freedom, that security. Something money and property and whatever can't eternally offer you. He sees you. He recognizes you. He validates you. 
something he gives us, something that no other person can satisfy. Jesus meets our every need. He's not some mute or deaf idol that promises so much but delivers so little. This is the living God. We've got to reflect on that in our lives, in our hearts. For the Thessalonian church and for us, isn't that what happened when we came to know Jesus? We turned from idols. Isn't that part of our testimony? Perhaps when you got baptized or will get baptized, you're able to share, I once worshipped this in my life. My life revolved around this very thing. I thought this was going to satisfy me and fulfill me, and I've learned the hard way that it doesn't. But today I stand before you with my trust and my faith and my life centered upon Jesus, who saved me. I've turned from idols. I now serve the true and living God. Wow, a life changed and transformed. It's evident as well in your life, the way you live. Your heart's change. It overflows. It spills out into your actions, your speech, even your decision-making. No longer led and motivated by the idols you once worshipped, but now directed and led by Jesus. That's what Paul is celebrating. That's why he's thanking God for this church, because he can see the marks of a Christian played out in their lives. That's what genuine faith looks like, where others can see this evidence. Their lives no longer worshipping idols, but turn to serve the living and true God in anticipation, waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Messiah, the one who rescues us to return. Friends, isn't that our story? Isn't that what we see in the lives of people around us when we share about our faith and why we love Jesus? Is that what people see in your life? As they hear about, as they hear you speak, as they see your actions and the decisions that you make, that you've turned from serving the idols of your heart to serving our Lord Jesus? Do they see the work produced by faith, your labor of love for others, your endurance and hope, the joy even amidst the sufferings that we might face, a life that's changed? Not because you've become a nicer person, right? Not because you're trying to make yourself look good and you know, not because you're trying to earn any brownie points with God, but simply because of your deep conviction that Jesus has rescued you. So today, you'll stand firm. You'll choose Christ. You'll live in light of the eternity that he's secured for you. I know this last week has shaken up a lot of people in regard to being a Christian and working in the public sphere. Andrew Thorburn stood for his faith, he stood for his Christ, but that's not an easy feat, is it? The reality is for many of us in this room, church is our little hideaway, one day a week where we can be free, free to practice our faith and worship God, sing songs to Jesus, pray, read and learn from the Bible, love one another without any fear of being humiliated, condemned, vilified or mocked. I hope no one's mocking each other for being a Christian here. But five to six days a week, you're in the world. And you have to face a world that doesn't always agree with you, the church, with Jesus, with our beliefs. And I'm sure many of us here are tempted to just hide your faith. Tempted to deny Christ. Tempted to not want to bring up anything that relates to church. Don't ask me what I did Sunday morning. I just saw some friends. I can understand how you might be feeling. And I'd imagine I'd feel the same, right? But let me remind you of some truths to get you through another week. 1 Thessalonians says you're loved by God. It says you're chosen by God. It says you've been saved by Jesus. And when he comes back, he'll rescue us. He'll take us away from this broken world that we live in. There is an eternity to look forward to where there will be no more pain and no more suffering and no more tears and no more hurt where there is freedom and security in its truest sense, where you can feel the way you feel at church every day of the week 
in eternity. Jesus has promised us that. Yet Jesus also reminds us that we do live in a world that has turned away from God. We live in a broken world that's far from God and His ways. And that if we followed a persecuted, crucified Savior, we too will have to bear our cross and see that we live uh, in a world that will reject and despise our faith and our trust in our God. We see that in the Bible, and we face that in our reality today. But my hope is today that you're encouraged. Stand firm. Produce fruit. Find joy. Keep persevering in turning to and serving our Lord Jesus. Be an example of life and light and love to those around you. And expect it will be hard. And as, it is, as it's hard, keep leaning. Keep leaning into Jesus in prayer, who knows you and has your back. And where possible, don't stop meeting with other Christians for support, for encouragement, time in the Bible to get equipped. That's why we have small groups, these community groups, that, missional communities where we meet together. This afternoon, we have gospel leaders. You know, it's an opportunity to get equipped to learn more about how we can speak about Jesus in the everyday world that we live in by looking at church history, looking at the good things and bad things that the church has done in the past so we can be more equipped to talk about those things. But most importantly, how can we speak in this world with integrity, with faith about the God we worship? And saying all that, let me challenge you. As you go into the world for the next six days, keep equipping yourself with, really, go back to the source, go back to the Bible. Go back to his word, his promises, his hope, his love for you. Friends, keep looking to him for your confidence. Keep looking to him for your courage and live out these marks of the Christian life as Paul writes about in 1 Thessalonians. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have loved us, you've chosen us, you see us, and you know us. We thank you, Lord, that you loved us even when we were your enemies, that Christ was sent for us to die on a cross so that we could live, so that we could know life and know joy abundance. Empower us by your Spirit, Lord. Empower us to be a people who are marked by your faith, marked by love, marked by hope, marked by joy, because of the cross of Christ, because of what you offer for us in light of eternity. I do pray for that, Lord. I pray that you'll, you'll uh, be with us, be with your church as we go into the world and as we live out our faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.